This is the Sports Business Radio Roadshow, presented by Boingo Wireless from the Boingo Innovation Center in Las Vegas, with special guest, Las Vegas Golden Knights President and COO, Carrie Bubbles. Now, the Sports Business Radio Roadshow, presented by Boingo Wireless. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started. First of all, thank you for being here uh, at the Boingo Innovation Center. We uh, launched this facility at CES this year. So uh, this is one of the first number of events we have here. So uh, we're very happy to have you here tonight and thank you for coming. Um, I'd like to acknowledge a couple of people first. We have some uh, members of CTIA and uh, members from Capitol Hill here. So we wanna thank you for coming and appreciate all the great work that you do uh, for our industry. So thank you for being here. Um, we have some UNLV students here sitting right in the front row, just like I used to do in college. When, right up to that first seat. Professor Nancy, thank you for coming here and bringing everybody here. We've got a great, uh, a great uh, show for you here tonight. Uh, we're gonna have the uh, President and Chief Operations Officer for the Stanley Cup champion, Vegas Knights, Carrie Bubbles. Uh, very happy to have you here. Uh, and Brian Berger is uh, our host who's gonna be uh, interviewing Carrie here. So without further ado, thank you for being here. And uh, I'm gonna turn it over to, to Brian to get us going. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Berger. I'm the host of Sports Business Radio. Um, we're really excited to have everyone here today. Thank you so much to Boingo for hosting us in this beautiful space. Um, I am going to talk to Carrie here for a little bit, but then at the end, we're going to open it up to questions from the audience. We'll take a few and guess what? The Vegas Golden Knights have been kind enough to give us a few tickets to tomorrow night's preseason game. Versus Los Angeles, right? So uh, best question or questions, get tickets for tomorrow night's preseason game. So that's pretty exciting. So have your best questions ready. Um, we're recording this right now for our podcast. It'll be available tomorrow, sportsbusinessradio.com. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We're 19 years old and have had many great conversations over the years with uh, decision makers like Carrie, so let's welcome Carrie Bubbles. Carrie, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, and uh, big shout out to uh, the Rebels that are in the house. We, we love our UNLV Rebels. Yes, thank you so much to Dr. Nancy and for UNLV for being here. It's always great to have uh, students, the next generation of sports executives uh, in, in the house. Um, since we have students here, one of the things I always like to start with is you went to Oklahoma State, right? Yes. So what was your college experience like? Take us all the way back to your college experience. What was that like? Well, I, I'm just going to keep it brief. Um, you know, from that perspective, uh, Oklahoma State was a great university. Uh, back then at that time, you got to keep in mind that there weren't, uh, like there is today, there weren't sports management, sports marketing, sports administration. Uh, there may have been a handful of schools that offered that type of curriculum, but that really wasn't available. Uh, I, much like a lot of students uh, who have interest in sports, thought about working in sports, but probably really didn't know what that meant. Uh, had the opportunity to meet the local general manager uh, of the minor league baseball team in my hometown, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, he gave me real good insight, like the business of sports. And that uh, really helped clarify in my mind that that's really what I wanted to do. Uh, I had been a baseball player at the junior college level, transferred to Oklahoma State to, to finish my degree and really focused in at that point on trying to find my way in. 
and fortunately had a chance to work uh, for the minor league baseball team for my last two years while I was in school. Got a lot of experience uh, across uh, more of the operation side of the business, um, but it really helped fuel my passion. And, and ultimately, once I graduated, um, I finished out that summer, and then I got an opportunity to continue my career uh, in minor league baseball in Davenport, Iowa. So that was really the next step in the journey from there. But it, uh, Oklahoma State's it's a fun school. It's a great school um, and uh, have a lot of tremendous memories. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just part of the journey. One of the things you hear from sports executives now is doing those jobs like minor league baseball, where you can wear a bunch of different hats. You get to get your hands dirty in a lot of different areas. Um, how was that for you? Did you get to work in a lot of different areas that kind of helped you for what you're doing now? Yeah, I think I think I really um, I really valued that time, and I probably didn't know it at the time because you know some of it was pretty hard pretty hard work, right? Um, and it wasn't necessarily what my passion was. So I started out more focused on the food and beverage operation for the minor league baseball team. Uh, I wasn't necessarily a food and beverage expert, and that certainly wasn't my passion. But what I did learn fairly quickly was how important it is to the revenue of a minor league baseball organization. Uh, unlike at the, the uh, NHL or NBA level, uh, food and beverage was about 60% of our gross revenues versus you know where that might be seven or eight percent of our gross revenues, you know, at the level, you know, at the NHL level. Um, so it's vastly different in terms of its importance. Um, but it really took me deep into the operational side, as I mentioned, um, but also the customer service side, because you really learn, um, you know, how important it is. And it is all, it's all hands on deck to make sure that you're doing a good job. Uh, every hot dog has to be hot. You know, every beer has to be cold and you have to do it in a fast fashion. And, and uh, you got to work with a lot of people. And so at a very young age, uh, I probably had 125 to 150 people that were reporting through me at, you know, I had just graduated college. And uh, so I learned about scheduling. I learned about inventory management and those were all, all served me very well. Um, but early on in my career, as I transitioned through minor league baseball in Davenport, Iowa, um, I got to really see all of the operation. And then we started learning about ticket sales and sponsorships and uh, the other areas of the business. Um, and so, at a, you know, like I said, after my first four or five years, um, pretty much had the opportunity to see every aspect. Now, this was Class A baseball, right? So this wasn't the NBA or the NHL, um, but I did get a chance to see, you know, even though the, the, the numbers might be larger at the major league level in terms of dollars and revenue and, and, uh, and the expenses associated with it, um, I think fundamentally the business is the same. Mm. If you're doing it right at that level, uh, you can do it right at the major league level. And, and I, you know, I really value that experience early on. Talk to us a little bit about leadership. So you were the president of the Cleveland Cavaliers. You're now the president of the Vegas Golden Knights. You just talked about how you were leading people at a very young age. What are your philosophies with the best way to lead people? Well, first and first and foremost, I think leadership is is about leading by example, um, and so I really believe that. Um, I think there's several kind of key things that uh, that I like to uh, follow. Uh, one is I, I believe you have to set the pace. Uh, you have to set the pace of the organization, right? And so if if you're if you're casual in your pace, then I think you have a casual organization. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, want our, I want our organization to have urgency, especially when it comes to our customers, right? Our season ticket members, our sponsors. 
and, uh, and the amount of work that we have to get done. Um, at the end of the day, we're a relatively small organization, but we're running in a very, very pro high profile environment. And uh, I think you have to set the pace of the organization. If you came into our business offices, um, all of the senior members of the organization, um, you know, we don't have walled off offices. We have wide open mm -hmm. glass windows. And so uh, people are paying attention whether you want to believe that or not. And uh, I would hope they would say this guy's always got a pace and a sense of urgency. I think set the pace is probably one of the most important things. Um, the other one is I really believe your best ability is your availability, right? Your best ability is your availability. Now, Bill Parcells said that about his athletes on the football field. So he was talking about guys being available on Sunday, right? right? If you're hurt all the time, you're not you're not helping me, right? Do what I need to do. For me, when I say best ability is your availability, what I'm talking about is being available to the other line mates in our organization, the other people in our organization. If I'm not physically there and I'm not available or I'm not in tune when they come into my office, um, then I'm not, I'm not maximizing what I'm there to be doing. And uh, that's to help move the business forward every single day. And I can't do it all by myself, right? So you have to have people that are comfortable coming in with thoughts, ideas, questions. Um, and I'll say all the time, you know, here's my opinion that it's your decision, right? Because you have to own it. Because if you're owning that decision, you're going to have more buy-in to that decision. Um, but I always say, here's my opinion. But ultimately, you got to make your own decision. And, uh, and we try to lead with, uh, so best abilities, your availability. The other one is, I, I don't believe a lot really happens uh, when it comes to, um, you know, a lot of times they'll talk about CEOs, like you have to lead the strategy of an organization. I think you got to be in the weeds because I don't, I don't know what necessarily happens when you're flying around. Like this is a, this is a business where you have to be in the weeds, right? So ticket sales meetings, sponsorship meetings, content meetings, uh, game entertainment meetings, right? You know, the show, that's a big part of what we do over at T-Mobile Arena at the Fortress. Um, and so when people ask me, well, tell me more about how you think about the business strategically. It's like, yes, we have strategic thoughts. But at the end of the day, what we have to do is we have to get in the weeds and get after it. This is not a complicated business that requires a lot of strategy. Uh, what it requires is people to get in there, get their hands dirty, and uh, you know, sell tickets, sell sponsorships, and create an energy and an environment, um, and create the uh, the experience that people are going to want to pay money for. Uh, it's not cheap to come to our events, so. Uh, being in the weeds, I believe, is important. And I say, lastly, uh, look, this is supposed to be the entertainment business. It's supposed to be fun. And if you're not having fun, then you probably should go work somewhere else. So I, you know, I have a little trigger with my employee badge when I scan it in the morning. Put that smile on, right? If you're not having fun, you can't sell this business. And uh, one of our, we have what we call the Knights Code, but one of my favorite sayings is, smile even if you've had all your teeth knocked out by a high stick. <laughs> and really what it says is, Look, this is the National Hockey League. We're the Vegas Golden Knights. We're one of the most popular teams in the National Hockey League. Like, if you can't have fun selling this business, then, then you, you should do, like I said, you should do something else. This is supposed to be fun, um, but you can't fake it, right? You can't fake it. So um, I've probably got like 20 more when it comes to leadership. But those are, those are some of my more uh, popular ones that, uh, that I like to uh, live by every day. I love those. I hope everyone was taking note. That was kind of like a master class right there. 
uh, set the pace. You go to the Stanley Cup finals in year one. You win the Stanley Cup in year six. You made it look pretty easy. A lot of other owners are going, hey, my team hasn't been to the Stanley Cup in years. And, and look at the Vegas Golden Knights. They're going in, in year one. When you were hired for this job, what was the conversation of, you know, I know your owner kind of put everyone on the clock. We want to do this in a certain amount of time. What was that like knowing there's an urgency to be championship caliber from day one? Well, you know, you got to give you got to give Bill Foley a lot of credit for those that aren't familiar with what uh, what we're talking about here. He had said playoffs in three cup in six. And so, again, a lot of the quote unquote experts in the hockey industry were like, that's ridiculous. There's no way you can you can build a team like that. Um, But, you know, what I love about Bill is he's not afraid to um, put expectations out publicly. And uh, there's there's nothing wrong with that because I think it helps lead to meeting that expectation or exceeding that expectation. Um, now, is it uncomfortable at times? Sure, but that's why he's as successful in business as he is, and uh, certainly deserves a lot of the credit for setting the expectation. I will say that that once we went through the process of preparing for the expansion draft that first year. We ultimately made the selection of the players that we did make. Um, those same experts said this may be the worst NHL team we've ever seen because they were such experts that they looked at our roster and thought it may be the worst they've ever seen. Well, then by about mid-year when we were already one of the top teams in the NHL and by the time we got to March, we had qualified for the playoffs. And by the time we got to uh, the latter uh, weeks in May, we had won the Western Conference Championship and we were playing in the Stanley Cup. They all said, well, they changed the rules of expansion and made it so favorable for the Golden Knights to do well. So it wasn't because our hockey group had done such a great job of preparing for the expansion draft and making great decisions. And oh, by the way, maybe knowing organizations better than the people that were in charge of running those organizations. And I believe that because I, I saw the work that they put into it and the preparation that they put into it. Um, but instead, the narrative then became, well, they had changed the rules and therefore um, that's what led to it versus as opposed to just saying, you know what, these guys really worked hard. They prepared. They knew the organizations well. They had a great strategy going into the expansion draft, and they got some really, really good players that had great character that when they came together as one, along with some tremendous leadership like Marc-Andre Fleury, who was our goaltender, uh, came together in a really special way, and we were a really good hockey team that first year. But it was something to build on, right? We didn't get it done. We got we finished uh, – you know, we lost to Washington that first year, but – um, that, uh, that really helped fuel the organization as we continued forward with years two, three, four, and we had some ups and downs along the way and some real challenges, uh, along the way, uh, with season five, we didn't make the playoffs at all. And so everybody thought, well, okay, they're done. Their run is over. Right. And internally we ignored that noise. We knew that we had some key players that, uh, spent a lot of time not playing because they were injured. And we knew that we had that core group back. And with a few tweaks, which happened along the way, um, we were playing really good hockey again. And we weren't surprised by the fact that we had won the Pacific Division, ultimately finished first in the Western Conference, 
and then uh, steamrolled uh, through the playoffs. I mean, we really played well in the playoffs and, and ultimately won the Stanley Cup. So um, I don't think we were as surprised. I think we felt like it was our time. You're one of the few executives in pro sports that has won a championship in the NBA with the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James and recently with the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, Cleveland had gone for years without winning anything. Obviously, again, you do this here in, in year six. What were those experiences like? Because, again, not many people get to experience both. Uh, well, first of all, they were both they were both special, right? In Cleveland, it had been 52 years. Um, there had been a long-standing narrative that Cleveland was the mistake on the lake, and they had all these close calls, right? Um, you know, the '97 World Series and in football with the Browns, there was there was the fumble and the drive with John Elway, and then in basketball, it was Michael Jordan and the shot, and so there were all these near misses. And then finally in 2016, we were able to win uh, the NBA championship against uh, nothing against the Golden State Warrior fans that are in the off in the room today. But um, they had a historic year that year. They went 72 and 10 during the regular season. They lost one game at home and uh, they were up three games to one against us in the in the in the NBA championship. And uh, then we won game five. Then we won game six. And then, of course, we went back to Golden State. We won game seven. Um, being able to win the Stanley Cup at home was special. Um, but bringing that, going back to your question, um, what was the funnest part of it was seeing two communities that in one instance had um, that 52-year history of those near misses finally winning and the euphoria that was associated with it. And then also the confidence. I think a lot of times people from Cleveland were almost – embarrassed to say they were from Cleveland. And that's kind of sad to say. That's their hometown, yet they were embarrassed to say they were from Cleveland because of all these these other narratives. And and uh, and now what I saw is a group of people are like, hey, we're world champions. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And they were so to see that community pride I think was special. Here it was very similar. You have a large population here in Las Vegas of people from other places, right? Um, they're not Vegas born like the Golden Knights. They're from somewhere else. And to see how the Golden Knights became a thread that connected this community in a different way than it had been connected before, uh, maybe since the Rebels back in uh, 1990 and 91 when they had just some incredible teams where the community really came together behind kind of one. And uh, to see that happen when we won the Stanley Cup back in back in June was really uh Really awesome, and it was uh, it was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of pride associated with it. And like I said, to do it at home, it's even that much more special. It was incredible. Is someone who, again, president of an NBA team and an NHL team, just in general, what are some of the biggest differences that you've noticed between the two leagues? Uh, I, you know, I think, well, first of all, let me talk about the similarities. Um, when you think about the business of the NBA and the business of the National Hockey League, um, there's probably more similarities than there are differences. Obviously, the products are different, right? One's one's played on a court, one's played on ice. Um, but if you think about the economics and you think, so 82 games, they're both 82. They're both played uh, during a similar window between October through April. 
Um, a lot of what drives the economics of the business is very similar. Now, it may be a little more weighted in the NBA to media rights versus uh, the NHL, where your gate revenue is a higher percentage of your total revenue pie. Um, but there's just a lot more similarities, I think, to running an NBA organization uh, that as, as, as there are in running an NHL organization. Probably the biggest thing that I noticed uh, between the two is um, the NBA at this point, you know, has done a phenomenal job relative to its globalization. Um, so the NBA today is probably more global than the NHL, even though the NHL uh, over the last several years has been really working hard to grow the game outside of North America. And I believe they've done a nice job. Uh, we just had two, uh, two of our teams, Arizona and L.A., played down in Australia. So it's the first time they've had hockey down in Australia. Um, we've played some games over in Asia uh, China, but the NBA had already been there 10 years ago. Um, back in 2007, we went to uh, we went over to to Beijing, and or maybe it was 2008. But uh, so the NBA was you know just further ahead relative to the globalization. Uh, so I'd say that's probably a big difference. Um, the other would be just how the how the games are positioned. The NBA, if you you know if you follow the league and you look at its um, you know its kind of league, the way it positions. Uh, it's games. It's it's about the players, right? It's LeBron, and it's when Shaq was playing, you know, Shaq, and when Kobe was still alive, it was Kobe, and and of course Michael, and it probably started with Michael Jordan. Now Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, but it's very much a star-driven league, and the league is not shy about how it puts that out there that it's this player versus that player. Um, where in the NHL, it's much more team-driven in terms of how it's marketed and promoted and, and some of that's cultural but also um uh, you know there's there's five players on the you know on the court at one time where in the nhl even though there's only six players who may be on the ice but you know they're playing about 45 seconds before they're jumping over the boards and coming in with the next line and so um you really need that full roster of 20 to you know, there's 18 players plus the you know plus the two goalies on a given night. But other than the backup goalie, every one of those other players pretty much plays every game. Where that may not be the case uh, in the you know in the NBA, and so um, you know that it's it's more of a team promoted uh, event. But there's a lot more similarities between the between the two than not. Before we talk more Vegas Golden Knights, I've got to ask you about LeBron. You know, you were just talking about these mega stars that are global stars. What was it like working with someone like that when you were the president of the Cavs and, and someone with a global appeal? I would imagine when you're talking to sponsors, the whole world opens up versus just companies in Cleveland. Yeah. So keep in mind that when, uh, when we first got LeBron, he was 18 years old, right? So um, he was, he was a, a much different person when he was 18 than what he is today as, you know, as a 38 year old uh, man with, with grown children, you know, to an extent. And, and obviously the uh, just the unbelievable success that he's had on the court. So, you know, we had the opportunity to kind of see it from the ground floor uh, when he was just 18 and he had a lot of people that were just helping him figure out life. Um, and so that, uh, that was a big part of it. The basketball was always there, right? He, the talent uh, was incredible. Um, you know, if I had to think back to, you know, what were the things that impressed me about LeBron early on and then maybe a couple of the challenges early on, um, even at 18, LeBron understood two really important things. He understood that 
the, the main thing was the main thing, meaning he was there to play basketball. And so everything that went into playing basketball was going to be the most important thing in his life. How he treated his body, even at 18, uh, both in terms of his nutrition, but the work that he put in before the game, after the game, during the game, um, what he was doing at 18 and those habits he had then, um, they're still there today. And I believe, I don't know, um, but I believe it's helped him physically. Um, it's allowed him to maintain the consistency and the level of play that, that, he's, uh, that he's been at. And, uh, and so I always admired that because it would have been easy to wait till you're probably 30 to start thinking about that. Um, but he was thinking about it at a really, really uh, uh, young age. Um, and just did an amazing, amazing job. Um, and then also just uh, being very selective and thinking about his brand um, and being very intentional about it. it. You can only be intentional if you know what you're trying to accomplish. And uh, you could tell he had really smart people that he was working with at that age um, to really uh, help um, steer his, his direction uh, relative to all the opportunities, because my guess is we only saw a fraction of the opportunities that came his way, because um, at the end of the day, they were going directly to him in most cases, not always coming through the team. So, um, But I was always impressed with those, uh, with those elements. A few of the challenges just come with the sheer volume of people that, that uh, wanted to have the ability to um, – you know, from sponsors of the team wanting to have him at events, except like there was only one LeBron. And, you know, like I said, because he spent so much of his time just focused on, hey, I'm here to play basketball. Um, you know, there, it, it, was, it just created some disconnect uh, for us because it just made it harder to, you know, because there's only, you know, there's only one. Every, someone would say, well, it's just one more interview. It's just one more autograph. Yeah, but to you, it's one more. But like to me, being uh, uh, aware of all of it, it's it's a hundred more, and and so uh, just trying to work uh, with our basketball group to make sure that uh, we were setting this young man up for success, and I, I believe we we did a great job of doing that. Um, when he went away to Miami, came back four years later, he was a completely different uh, person from a maturity level. And uh, I wasn't surprised by the fact that, you know, that we went out and won an NBA championship. He was just – the confidence that he got in Miami from winning two titles, uh, he came back, and uh, I, I knew it was just a matter of time before we were going to get it done, and, and we did. So he was, uh, he was pretty special. Yeah, quite a feat. Okay, so we have listeners around the world, and a lot of them are watching what's going on in Las Vegas as a sports market. You've got the Golden Knights – got the Raiders. Uh, there's talk the A's may come here. There's talk the NBA may come here one day. The Super Bowl is coming here in February. F1 is coming here before that in November. Describe to people who are not intimately familiar with Vegas as a sports market, what is it? Well, first of all, I, I believe we could see it coming going back to 2017-2018. Um, the uh, the market already had a, a significant kind of presence in certain sports. So again, strong in the collegiate market with UNLV. You already had UFC, which is a global brand that was headquartered here. Uh, it's already considered the boxing capital of the world. So top ranked boxing was already here. Uh, of course, you had the AAA baseball team. But once 
the barrier was broken to bring major league sports here because it wasn't a function of market size, right? Uh, even though it's the 40th largest market, there's still 2.3, 2.4 million people here. And then at the time, there was about 4 million visitors a month, uh, close to 50 million over the course of a, a year. And so it wasn't about the number of people. It was more about the gaming narrative and the concerns that the NFL and the NBA and the NHL and Major League Baseball had. But once that barrier was broken, when Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the NHL, and Bill Foley, our owner, uh, were able to reach agreement that uh, if we uh, reach certain benchmarks relative to the season ticket drive, that they would approve this franchise, I believe it really opened up the doors um, to uh, to all of the growth that we've seen. But you could just see it coming. So T-Mobile Arena was built, so that was the first kind of major uh, facility investment that had happened in a long time here in the market, which allows for an NBA-ready building and an NHL-ready building. So that was in place. As soon as we uh, got things wrapped up, shortly thereafter, here comes the NFL. Of course, they needed to build a stadium, which they did with Allegiant Stadium, which, again, we knew that that would create other opportunities because now you've got major league facilities that can handle other events. And so, uh, you know, quickly... Um, groups like the LVCVA started bidding on um, other events because now college sports is saying, all right, well, if the pros are willing to go there with major events, maybe we should too. And so, um, you know, now we've got on the docket coming up the Frozen Four, which is the college hockey's championship. We've got the NCAA basketball Final Four, so that's going to be coming up over the next couple of years. Football uh, with the uh, NCAA championship football game, so that'll be coming up. But that was all because of the facilities and then breaking down that barrier that we talked about relative to the gaming element. And then it just continues from there. So F1, obviously, uh, we have a 10-year agreement with F1, uh, which this November, uh, they'll come here. They're going to uh, just, it's going to be incredible. Uh, I don't believe our community really understands how global Formula One racing is. And I believe nothing against the Super Bowl, because I think the Super Bowl is a pretty big deal, I believe F1 will put Las Vegas on a map that it hasn't been on before. We're already a global brand. We're already a well-known city. Um, but I think we're going to be well-known uh, in a different way from a sports lens than just an entertainment lens, which I think is uh, really, really awesome. Uh, and then, of course, the Super Bowl, which, you know, again, that's coming up this February. Uh, you mentioned the A's, uh, the rumors about the NBA, like all of that. Uh, is real, and, but it all starts, I believe, with the catalyst. And I believe that catalyst was two people, Gary Bettman and Bill Foley, taking a big risk uh, in terms of financial, but also being the first uh, into this market. And then I hope along the way, because of the success that we've had on the ice and then off the ice with our business, that, uh, that it's helped um, create confidence for others that are considering uh, making investments in sports and entertainment here in the Valley. And, uh, and so we're, we're proud of the role that we've played in that. Uh, and then I don't want to forget the Las Vegas Aces. They came in from San Antonio. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the best women's basketball team in the world. They won the championship a year ago. Uh, hopefully they're going to get it done here in the next couple of weeks uh, again with what they're doing. And so it truly, that narrative of entertainment capital is now really the sports and entertainment capital but it's got real substance behind it because of all of the events that are along the way. And I mentioned the Super Bowl because I want to tell you one story about that. So the Super Bowl, uh, when it comes here in February, um, there's going to be about 300,000 people that are going to come to the market. 
to participate in the different activities. Obviously, not everybody can go to the game. But this past year during the Super Bowl, about 300,000 people came to Las Vegas to enjoy the experience of the Super Bowl, even though the game was not in Las Vegas. And so to me, that's the biggest difference. Not that it's not going to have great impact. It will. Um, but we're already, we already get a lot of great impact from the Super Bowl uh, every year because people want to come here to experience the biggest game in our, you know, in North America um, without actually having been at the event. And so you can do that here in Las Vegas, the sports books, um, all the great entertainment areas to watch and participate. And so that weekend is always a big deal in Las Vegas, much like the Final Four weekend, um, uh, you know, during college basketball season. And so, uh, so anyway, it's just kind of an interesting. So like when the, when it's in those other cities, they may say, well, we had 200,000 people. 300,000 came to Las Vegas and the game wasn't even here. So, um, so anyway, it's pretty cool to have that. Do you have any concerns about an oversaturation of the market? I mean, that's a lot of stuff that we just talked about that's coming here. You know, I always, I think it's always a consideration, but every business is different in terms of what drives that business. So when I think about the National Football League, um, that business is so driven by its media rights uh, which is completely different than how our business is driven. Uh, for the Golden Knights to be successful, we have to be locally driven in everything that we do. Uh, if someone comes in town from Philadelphia and they want to uh, watch their team on the road, the Philadelphia Flyers, hey, that's just gravy at our games. Our business is built locally and it's going to succeed long term with what we do locally, where the business model of the National Football League is completely different. And so each one of those businesses have different, um, you know, different structures and different uh, ways that their businesses work. Major League Baseball is also different. So um, how they look at this market and how they would maximize it if it gets approved uh, for the, you know, for the Oakland A's to come here, then, uh, you know, that's going to be up to them to figure out. But, uh, we, you know, we feel comfortable with our place in the market. And we also feel like the market uh, can sustain um, the other opportunities that are out there that have already been discussed. We're a couple minutes away from going to audience questions. So be thinking of your, your best questions. Um, the NHL players voted on the best atmosphere for any arena, any game in the NHL. And it was a resounding, the Vegas Golden Knights are the best place to play. Your pregame I mean, it is, it is Vegas style that you guys do it up with. Where did that all originate? Because it is pretty over the top. It's, it's amazing. I mean, really, you don't see anything like it with any other pregame in, in sports. Well, the only thing I would say is, um, you know, the NBA is about, you know, let's go back to the early 80s, 90s. They would call it, it's showtime. And so having the ability to work in the NBA for 13 years, I think, served me well. Um, now, did we push the envelope the same way we do with the Golden Knights when I was in Cleveland? Uh, probably not. With that being said, was entertainment as important to every ticket, every sponsorship, the product on the court? Absolutely. We had a scoreboard when I was in Cleveland that, you know, the, the corners came down and it breathed fire. I mean, so um, music and video and in-game entertainment, mascots, dance teams, like how it all comes together. Um, I was able to really see it at a really, really high level. Um, so from that end, uh, understanding what success would look like. Um, what we did, though, when, once we got to Las Vegas, is we just felt 
because of the expectation of the entertainment experience here in Las Vegas, that we just had to find a way to take it to that next level. Um, we wanted to be different, but we wanted to be Vegas in that presentation. You know, sometimes we'll be at league meetings and people come up and say, well, we could never have showgirls on the glass during player warmups. That wouldn't work. And I'm, I'm going to like, yeah, that would be stupid because showgirls have nothing to do with Philadelphia or St. Louis, but they have a lot to do with Las Vegas, right? But the, the concept of having someone or something distract the visiting team during warmups, you can do that in 31 other markets. You just have to think about what that looks like in your market. In our market, it's beautiful showgirls standing behind the glass waving to the players. But uh, what that looks like in your market is, is something different. And so, um, you know, so it's, it kind of gets lost in terms of how people think. But at the end of the day, what it is is, you know, I, I think about WWE. So what do they do every single time they have their, uh, you know, their show, right? They have good guys and they have bad guys. And then they tell stories within that every single show, right? And sometimes good guys become bad guys and bad guys become good. Now, that never happens with us. The good guys are always the Golden Knights and the bad guys are always the visiting teams. But my point is, is it's, it's about storytelling within the game and with the, within the presentation. And then it's about timing, and uh, and so it's it's not overly complicated. Again, I think the best in the business really is WWE because they have to they don't have an NHL hockey game that let's pretend our game presentation was not very good. The game of hockey is still a great game live. Right. We talked about that earlier. They don't have that. They have their presentation and they have their storytelling and they have their their show. And so uh, we really spend a lot of time watching that group. We had a few of our employees uh, when we initially launched the Golden Knights that were a part of that. Um, and uh, and it, it makes for a lot of fun because we have an owner who has an appreciation for that storytelling. He just wants to make sure we're doing it within the confines of what our overall brand positioning is. And we've really tried to do that. And uh, again, if you haven't been out to a game, um, it's something that's very intentional. It's something we spend a lot of time on. Uh, and then there's also a lot of investment that goes into it. Lighting. A uh, big piece of it, um, some of the structures that we build to help produce the show, the costumes, uh, again, the music and the video that we create. Um, you know, there's a lot of thought that goes into it, but it's uh, it's we're pretty fortunate. We've got an owner who really values that part of the experience because he knows how it drives revenue. He also knows how it drives the entertainment experience, and ultimately, it creates an environment that other players like what you were just describing, when they're talking about it that way, that means they're somewhat interested in our organization too. And so it doesn't help in terms of uh, when free agent period, period rolls around, um, you know, we may have a leg up just because of that too. So it, uh, it all works together. We're here at the beautiful Boingo Innovation Center in Las Vegas. So I've got to ask you about the connected fan experience at Vegas Golden Knights games. Talk to us a little bit about that. That's obviously such a big part of the fan experience when they come to a game now. What are you focusing on there? Well, again, we're focusing on the fans that are in the facility, right? And uh, making sure that they're having a great, uh, great time. It's interactive. It's inclusive. 
Um, and so there's a lot of time, effort, and energy that goes into that. But now uh, we're also working on, you know, how do we take that outside of the experience that's happening in the arena? Um, during COVID, what, you know, gave us a great opportunity. We played uh, 12 home games where we didn't have one fan in the building. But what we tried to do was take the um, the experience that we would create if fans were in the building and then send it, you know, stream it back, if you will, to to our fans and give them an opportunity to kind of feel the music that would normally happen during warm-ups, during the game, the video clips, all those things that we do um, because fans couldn't be in the physical building during that time. Uh, but now we're really excited. We just launched a new streaming product called Nighttime Plus, uh, which, is, uh, which is awesome. So for the first time ever, Vegas Golden Knights games within our territory, which is five states all the way to Montana, um, we'll have the ability for uh, less than a dollar per uh, game to follow the Knights through whatever uh, streaming resource they're, you know, streaming resource that they're looking that that that's important to them. So if it happens to be on your phone, you can follow the Golden Knights on your phone. If it happens to be on uh, a connected uh, device, if it happened, you know, right there on your uh, your little tablet. Um, or if you have other streaming services like Apple TV or Roku, um, you can follow the Golden Knights. And so now we have an ability that we hadn't had before because um, not everybody wants to, you know, the old traditional regional sports model. It's changing. And uh, we've tried to get out in front of it. Uh, we have a new partner in Script Sports. And so uh, for those that are interested, we have free over-the-air television, so you can follow the team that way uh, or through all of these other channels with Nighttime Plus. And now we're just thinking of other ways to create more content that's relative, that's interesting, that's fun, synonymous with our brand that we can push out as well uh, to make it uh, even more uh, exciting for fans that follow the team. Well, I could ask you many more questions, but I want to make sure our audience has a chance to ask you some questions as well. So uh, my executive producer, Brian Griggs, here has the microphone. If you'd like to ask Carrie a question, please raise your hand. I'll start us off. <laughs> now, this is a good one, Gary. The Golden Knights have done an incredible job of building um, hockey in the city of Las Vegas. And by that, I mean youth hockey and the investment that you all have made in growing the game, because this was a city that basically didn't have a, a hockey, um, a love of hockey when you got here. And I think some of the things that you've done are exemplary as far as what other other markets could do to grow a sport. So can you just talk a little bit about how you all have done that and what benefit you see to that long-term? Yeah, so, um, you know, in terms of the, the question just relative to youth hockey and being able to grow that, I, again, I use the word intentional a lot, but early on, you know, I think we had to be honest with our ecosystem, right? And when it came to um, the, the next future fans of our organization, they, they probably didn't exist at that point in time. Um, the number of kids playing youth hockey in, in Las Vegas um, was measured at by like, it was like 93 in registered hockey in the market. There were um, two sheets of ice uh, that, uh, that were here. Um, but in terms of the uh, kind of the infrastructure around that, it was pretty limited. There was some. Um, but we knew that we needed to make investments in those areas. And so when we built uh, what we call City National Arena, which is our training facility for our NHL team, uh, it was much about the $32 million investment um, was about growing the game and doing it at the youth level. So we built the facility there. 
uh, in Summerlin. Uh, we hired uh, uh, some folks that uh, were aligned in what we called our development model. And so the development model didn't start with kids playing the game. It started with them just learning how to skate. And then they learn how to play. And then they go to little nights. And then they go on to, uh, you know, our house leagues. And it just kind of grows and evolves uh, from there. And then we made another investment over in Henderson, another $28 million investment in another facility with our American Hockey League team. But again, the primary purpose of making that investment was to grow the game at the youth level. And uh, now here we are six, uh, almost seven years later with our youth program, because uh, City National opened in uh, 2017, summer of 2017. Um, now we've got from 93, we've got over 6,000 kids in our hockey ecosystem playing. Uh, I was really proud last week because four years ago, we had no high school hockey in the Valley. There was zero. And then uh, Faith Lutheran decided, you know what? There's enough kids wanting to play. Let's, let's start a high school hockey program. So Faith Lutheran was the first team. Now, they were state champs by default, right? Because there was only <laughs> one team. Um, but they were playing all their games in L.A. So they have to travel to L.A. to play their games. Um, but last week was a proud moment because for the first time ever, they played another local team in high school hockey. They played Bishop Gorman. Now, same thing. There's only two teams. And uh, they're still going to have to go to L.A. to play other teams uh, at the high school level. Um, but the fact that we now have two high school teams, uh, I think, is a defining moment because now we've got more and more of those kids that started out at six and seven. Now they're 14, 15, 16, and they're still in our system and they're still playing this great game. And uh, we said right out of the gate, within uh, 10 to 15 years, we're going to have a kid come out of Las Vegas that's going to get drafted into the NHL. And we're on track for that to happen. Um, but it wouldn't have happened without the intentionality and, of course, the investment that went into the facilities. Um, and so now we're thinking about where's that next facility. We're going to build uh, probably two to three more of them over the next uh, five years and uh, continue that growth. Um, and, again, those are the future fans uh, of the Vegas Golden Knights, and, and you need to have that. Um, and so, like I said, very intentional, but I appreciate the question because it's, it's a real source of pride to see that many kids playing a game that, again, six, seven years ago was almost not available or non-existent to those kids. Dr. Nancy from the UNLV Business School, thank you for that question. If you ask a question, maybe just state your name and, uh, you know, who you're with so Carrie knows who you are. Hi, uh, Ben Newton with UNLV. Um, there's a lot of growing markets out west, like you know Boise, Salt Lake City, and all, all of Montana. They don't have NHL teams. Maybe they have an ECHL team, but uh, and you mentioned Nighttime Plus as a way to grow the fan base up there. But how specifically do you market those cities so they, if they're going to choose an NHL team, they don't choose the Kraken, they don't choose the Avalanche, they choose the Golden Knights. Yeah, thanks, uh, Ben. The, uh, right out of the gate, again, going back six years ago, um, Bill Foley said, look, we want to be the team of the Mountain West, right? So again, Mon all the markets you were just talking about. And we did some things very intentional early on. We actually did uh, what we, you know, was essentially the VGK bus tour. So we would put some of our broadcasters, uh, even that first year, you know, we didn't really even have our players in town yet. Um, but we went up to markets like Boise and Salt Lake and, and Butte, um, and we went throughout that territory with a, basically a road trip. Uh, we'd be gone for a week, and we've been doing that every year. We had a couple years, again, during COVID where we had to take time off. 
Um, but we also had a distribution partner on the TV side, which was AT&T Sportsnet, that allowed us coverage throughout that territory uh, that was granted to us by the NHL. The challenge was in a lot of those markets, um, they just weren't able to get the actual distribution uh, from a TV perspective. Therefore, it limited people's ability to really follow the team, at least through more of a traditional or linear method. And so we knew we had fans in those markets, right? But we couldn't reach them every single day with the actual product itself. And so that's why we're so excited now because with Script Sports, um, every single market. So we've got five markets in Montana. We've got three in Idaho, including Boise. We've got uh, one in Utah, which is Salt Lake. We've also got an affiliate now in Reno and, of course, Las Vegas. So we have uh, 12 different markets throughout our territory where every game is live. Every game is free. And that's separate from what I was talking about with Nighttime Plus. Um, so now we have a real ability for people to follow the team. Um, and then we've also had exhibition games. So we played in Boise. We played in Salt Lake. And we're going to continue to take the team out regionally uh, to play exhibition games and create that exposure and uh, and keep building fans on a regional basis. So hopefully uh, we beat a lot of those teams to the punch, if you will, to those markets. Think about Reno. It's actually closer to San Jose than it is Las Vegas, even though it's in Nevada. Uh, obviously, we have shared territory with the Kraken up in some areas, you know, again, like Montana and uh, Idaho. Um, but hopefully we were able to just kind of beat them to the punch and make them Golden Knights fans before they become Kraken fans or San Jose Sharks fans. And I feel like we're making real progress. We've got time for one more question. I see someone in the back there that uh, wearing the UNLV shirt. Good UNLV turnout today, by the yeah, way. That's right. Thank you. <clears throat> so my name is Amir. I am one of Dr. Lowe's fabulous students. Uh, I, ask, I have a, a twofer. So my first part of the question, the Vegas Golden Knights started off in 2017 behind a big tra tragedy. So it brought the community, it was a community base, you know, Vegas strong, right? So as you transition six, seven, eight years, having success here, going to more of a outbound tourist-based audience, what is your approach to keep the community still attracted, intrigued? And then the second part of my question, so each year we have a Renaissance Fair, right? So being the Golden Knights, would you ever do like a collaboration with the Renaissance Fair to provide a community, like a community thing, as well as like a community engagement? You're like Travis Kelsey shooting your shot right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the second, second part of the question is an easy yes, right? So get us the information about the Renaissance Festival uh, where it is, when it is, and how we can be involved, and we're going to jump on it. Um, you know, it's uh, that's important for us. The, uh, the the first part of the question, just relative to um, kind of the tragedy that happened, you know, back uh, back in 2017, October one. Um, you know, that was a circumstance. That wasn't something that was planned, obviously, on our part. So that was just a circumstance that happened through a very difficult time in our community. And uh, I'm proud of the way our organization uh, played a leadership role in the healing that took place uh, immediately after. Um, and it, and it, uh, it's probably, as I look back, uh, maybe helped, um, helped introduce our organization to this community in a really difficult time, maybe faster than it would have happened normally, right? In terms of just getting to know the community. Um, 
so that uh, you know that's kind of an interesting point. But as you know, as we've evolved, um, candidly, we we haven't transitioned. Um, as I said earlier, this business is going to work long term because of the local community and building our fan base at the local level. All these kids that I was talking about at the youth hockey level, like they're going to be Golden Knights fans for life. At least that's our plan, right? And so um, as I think forward, it becomes more and more local, even though we still want to build our fan base throughout the Mountain West. Um, but our, our, our focus and priority is more on that. It's not on, you know, it doesn't mean that uh, we don't love, like I said, we don't love that fan that may fly in because they're a, a fan of the St. Louis Blues and they come in to go the night we play the Blues. But we have a thing internally. We say we're going to take their points and we're going to take their money, Right. Take their points and take their money because they tend to spend more on food and beverage. They tend to spend more on retail. And, uh, and of course, uh, if we can win the game, which we're one of the best home teams in all of hockey, then, uh, then we're going to do that well. So it's not intentionally a focus of the organization, but certainly when they come, we're going to treat them well. And uh, like I said, hopefully take the two points on the ice as well. All right, I'm going to bring Mike Finley back up in a minute. But before I do... I just want to thank uh, Carrie for being here. Let's give Carrie a big round of applause. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is great. Such a, a well-run organization, such respect for what you've built, and uh, congratulations, continued success to you. Uh, I want to thank Boingo Wireless. What a beautiful innovation center that we're doing this podcast from. Let's give Boingo a big hand. I want to thank Dr. Nancy and her students from UNLV. Thank you for being here. Let's give them a hand. And then uh, right over here, my executive producer, Brian Griggs. That's him. You probably hear him on our podcast. And just thank you to everyone who came out today. This is a great turnout for this event. Um, if you want to listen to this conversation, it's going to be posted tomorrow, sportsbusinessradio.com. We're on Spotify. We're on iTunes. If you want to give us a follow on Instagram at Sports Business Radio, we're on Twitter at SB Radio. So we're on a lot of different platforms. We have such a great relationship with Boingo. They've been a longtime partner of ours. We're turning 20 years old next year. There's not many uh, shows of any kind that are around for 20 years, and it's in large part due to sponsors like Boingo. So thank you so much, Mike Finley. And I'm going to bring Mike to the front of the room here. Well, thank you so much, Brian. Great job as always. Carrie, thank you for being here. It's great for Boingo to be a part of Las Vegas in this community. And I mean, it's just unbelievable what you've accomplished and uh, a lot of great words here today. And one more thing I forgot. So the Vegas Golden Knights have been kind enough to give us two pairs of tickets to the preseason game tomorrow night. So Ben and Amir, you're going to the game tomorrow night. Thank you for your questions. 5G is here. Is your stadium ready? From an immersive fan experience to efficient game day operations, 5G is transforming sports and entertainment. If you're ready to jumpstart your 5G transformation, look no further than Boingo Wireless. Boingo is one of the largest operators of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. They provide stadiums and arenas with state-of-the-art 5G networks and support teams across the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, at NCAA. I'm constantly interacting with sports executives, and the reason they love working with Boingo 
is because Boingo manages 5G and Wi-Fi networks end-to-end, offloading very stretched IT teams. Whether your stadium is looking to support mobile ticketing, cashless payment, or connected operations, Boingo has you covered. But don't just take it from me. Their customers include world-class venues like Soldier Field, State Farm Arena, Petco Park, and University of Louisville. Boingo in 5G. Now that's what I call a win-win. For a limited time, Boingo has a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. They're offering a free 5G assessment for your stadium or arena. To get started, simply email sbradio at boingo.com and mention this podcast. That's sbradio at boingo.com. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for listening to the Sports Business Radio Roadshow, presented by Boingo Wireless from the Boingo Innovation Center in Las Vegas. Thanks also to our team at Sports Business Radio, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Ryan Nakajima, and Nicole Wardle. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, threads and Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Griggs Productions.